Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I am so excited today to have Jonathan Little on our podcast. He's a two-time World Poker Tour champion with over $7 million in live earnings. He's also an award-winning content creator, thepokercoaching.com founder, and the author of over a dozen poker books, including most recently, Excelling at Tough No Limit Hold'em Games, How to Succeed Beyond the Small Stakes. Well, I have fond memories of Jonathan this year as he was one of the last people I hung out with in real life in 2020 at the Global Poker Awards in Vegas, where he was seated to my direct left. But in this case, it turned out to be a fantastic table draw as we did both win awards. (laughs) But today he's gonna throw us back and talk to us about a hand that he played deep in a 5K six max event. This was actually so deep, it was a final table. And it was at the 2015 World Series of Poker. And he's gonna click off 6-8 suited on the grid. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for joining me. Hello, I apologize if you can hear my kids screaming because um, you know we started an interview right now and this kid's decided to go off. So uh, we're quarantined at home, locked down, and um, it's real life, I guess. We're not in the, in the casinos hanging out chilling. We're stuck in the bedrooms. So fun times. Kids screaming is really pleasant punctuation of poker hand analysis, isn't it? It's like when the kids scream or when the alarm bells go off or something like that, you just know something bad's about to happen in this poker hand. So, you know, just chill out a little bit. Be careful. I was playing online poker yesterday and like sirens started going off outside. And then I made a full house and lost a quads. It's like the world was trying to tell me. You better be (laughs) careful, buddy. (laughs) Well, what about this hand um, from the 2015 WSOP? I mean, you play so many events. You're so active both in the playing of poker and the business of poker. So how much do you remember about like the setting and, you know, making this final table? My memory is quite bad when it comes to final tables. I do know one of my friends, Jonathan Jaffe, was at the final table. I beat him heads up at Boxwoods for a WPT a few years before, and we became friendly. He's a coach on my site, pokercoaching.com now. And um, he was there, so I remember that. That was a lot of fun. I think Dominic Niche was there, too. He always gives me trouble. And um, we are playing against, I think his name was JT. Is that right? Yeah. I don't have the names pulled up. Oh, yeah. So JT seemed to be like one of the more recreational players out of the group. That said, everybody in this $5,000 tournament plays pretty well. Like, no one's going to go play $5,000 buying No Limit Hold'em and not have a clue how to play, right? So he had a solid medium stack. I was one of the chip leaders, I think, at the start of this hand. So he raised, under the gun, six-handed. So I thought he probably had something pretty good, but I had eight six of hearts in the big blind. So he min-raised, basically min-raised, to 85,000. We were playing 20,000, 40,000 blinds. This is back when they had a 5,000 ante per person instead of a big blind ante. So anyway, folds around to me. 
I'm going to call the H6 of hearts. I'm always calling H6 of hearts. I'm calling really wide here. And as the big stack at the final table, you should actually be defending like pretty wide because your medium stacked opponent just can't get away with being overly aggressive after the flop because they don't want to go broke before the various short stacks. And I think there was one or two shorter stacks at the table right here. So this is a good spot to call pretty wide. Flop comes jack seven, four, and uh, no hearts on the board. So jack of clubs, seven of spades, four of diamonds. I have eight, six of hearts. Interesting spot. I'm kind of actually thinking here, if I played this hand today, I might consider leading, as crazy as that may sound. Because if he has ace high or king high or an under pair, like he's likely to have, he's um, going to be in a pretty nasty spot. If I had open-ended, I'd probably be more inclined to check and just look to check-raise immediately and apply a lot of pressure. But with a gut shot, you don't really want to check-raise because if you check-raise and get called, it's just really, really bad. There's actually a chapter in this new book you mentioned, Excelling at Tough No Limit Hold'em Games, by Vladas Dojanovic, who actually won the stadium series for $1.5 bucks recently. And his chapter is on deep-stacked post-flop ICM. And he talks a lot about leading as the big stack, which is something I was kind of unfamiliar with back a few years ago when we played this final table. And essentially, you just get to apply a lot of pressure because if you can turn your opponent's entire range into bluff catchers by the river, and there's this huge risk premium, they can't really call with much of anything. So it's actually a really strong strategy. That said here, I just took the default line of checking. You're saying like with uh, today, after reading that chapter, you would just lead here just to stop them from being able to like try to pot control by checking back. Yeah. And, and also just if you can make them risk a lot of their stack by the river, there's not a whole lot they can do because in theory, they're supposed to fold out a lot of their bluff catchers. Now, will he fold out a lot of his bluff catchers is a different question, but by the river, he may need an extra 20 or 30% equity in the pot to justify calling with whatever hands he has. And it's hard to have that. And, and he needs that additional equity based on the fact that there are short stacks at the table who he really wants to outlast. And like in his scenario, he should be pretty cautious because he just doesn't want to get check raised. He doesn't want to get blown off whatever hand he has, right? Because whatever hand he has is probably in fine enough shape. So he's incentivized to keep the pot small or medium, whereas I'm incentivized to try to make the pot gigantic. And he's the one in position. He gets to control that if I check. Exactly. And what, but what's the, what's the advantage of leading as opposed to just trying to like, you know, bomb on the turn once you find out if they indeed do check behind? We can bomb on the turn in the river, but if we bomb turn and river, I mean, we, we may bet like 200K and then 600K. So he's still nowhere near all in because he started the hand with about 2 million chips. So we can't really force him to put all this money in by the river if we check the flop. Whereas if I bet the flop for, let's say, 100, the pot goes up to 400, then maybe we can bet like 400 on the turn. And then we can perhaps go all in on the river for, you know, a little bit more than the size of the pot and put him in just like a really, really bad spot. And we would also do that with our nut hands too, to be, you know, somewhat balanced. And that puts them in a pretty tough spot if we're leading with a lot of gut shop type draws and like King Jack and better for top here, second kicker and better. Wow. Well, another interesting thing to have in your arsenal indeed. And you in this hand decided to check and he did indeed check back, bringing you to a turn. Yep. We see the turn of six of diamonds. So Jack, seven, four, six, two diamonds on the board. And this is a spot where... I think the default play is probably to just check because now I have a really clear, like marginal made hand at pokercoaching.com. We always discuss classifying your hands. Either it's a premium hand that you're really happy to get a lot of money in with, which is usually like top pair, top kicker and better or something like that. Then you have a marginal made hand, which is what we have right here, you know, solid third pair. It's not great, but if we get to check it down, we probably win. These hands usually want to keep the pot small. Then you can have draws that either want to be betting or checking, depending on the scenario. As you have more premium hands, 
you want to be betting with more draws. And then you have junk, just like total garbage here. So like queen, 10 of clubs for nothing. So with your marginal hands, you're highly incentivized to just keep the pot manageable. Because if the pot becomes big, you're probably behind. However, this is a neat spot because when it does go check, check on the flop, I have to assume he has a whole lot of ace high type hands, right? Or like under pairs to the jack. So this is a spot where if I bet small, as long as I don't expect him to respond with too much aggression, betting small just essentially gets money in the pot when I am a favorite. Now, it is pretty bad here if I bet and get raised, but I remember back then JT was kind of being cautious, as he should be with the medium stack, so I didn't expect to get raised all that often. And this is one of these ICM scenarios where the medium stacked player can't really raise all that often anyway, because in this scenario, I have a lot of nut hands in my range, right? Like I have a lot of two pairs, a lot of straights. So this is a spot where betting seems at least reasonable in terms of like extracting value and protecting the hand. So I don't, I don't mind a small bet. I, I, you probably don't want to go too big though. Cause when you start betting bigger now, he's going to fold out the ACE high type hands, but whenever he does have a better hand than mine, he's just never folding. And then I'm just putting money in very poorly against those. So I like a small bet. Uh, checking's also fine though. Um, if there were no ICM considerations or if I thought JT was a little bit on the aggressive side, I'd be way more inclined to check because in scenarios like this, you want to ask what could go wrong. And what could go wrong is I could bet and then get raised and then probably have to fold the hand, which would be pretty, pretty nasty given I have a lot of equity. I think you can go either way in this scenario, depending on how you expect your opponent to play. So I did elect to bet 80,000 into the 220K pot. So about 30% pot. He did call, which is fine. Like whenever he calls, it's, you know, we're, we're in okay shape. Then the river is the five of diamonds. So I have a straight board is Jack, seven, four, six, five, three diamonds. So backdoor diamonds came in. And here, I definitely don't want to check. I want to get money in the pot now because a straight's really good. So at this point, I want to make a bet size that can conceivably get called by pairs worse than a jack, like tens, nines, eights. Well, eights is, eights is chopping now, tens and nines. Also marginal jacks like jack 10, that's a hand that may check back the flop. Maybe hand like ace seven, that's a hand that may check back the flop. And if he has ace high or king high, he's just never putting money in the pot anyway. I'm really just trying to get called by a pretty weak range. So I bet 145,000, which is about eh, 40% pot. Maybe even smaller is better because this is a pretty nasty scenario for him if he does have pocket nines or jack 10. I think this is fine. I mean, he's going to call a decent amount of time in this scenario, I have to presume. But then he raises. Small. So I made it 145. He makes it 370. Yuck. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is a spot where I'm, I'm actually very happy he made it small because when he makes it small, I think it's just a pretty easy call. I have to imagine I'm chopping here a lot, but he could have backdoor flushes. He would certainly check behind like ace and of diamonds on the flop, mm -hmm. call a turn bet every time, raise the river every time, right? So this is a spot where I think my only viable option is to just call. I mean, if you tell me he's literally never bluffing and also never raising an eight, then I guess I'm supposed to fold, but it's hard to know that anyone in a $5,000 buy-in tournament at the final table is that straightforward and not capable of making plays on the river. And like, look, whenever people raise me on the river, you usually have a pretty good hand, but the times that they are not going to always have a good hand is when you're playing against tough, like battling opponents. And even if your opponent has not been battling so far, that doesn't mean they're not going to start battling all of a sudden now, whenever they think the big stack is starting to apply pressure on them in a spot where they should have a lot of weak hands, right? What do you think would be a good bluff for him to have on the river? Just like in theory, probably hands like ace of diamonds blank. 
right? I mean, because in, like, what is he trying to even block here? He wants to block flushes because those are hands that are always going to call. And I could, I could have a lot of flushes in my range too, right? Because mm-hmm. I would definitely bet turn with flush draws and I would definitely bet them on the river. A nine, I don't think doesn't really matter all that much because a nine blocks nine, eight, but that's not a ton of my range, I don't think. So I guess just like ace of diamonds and king of diamonds. So something like the ace of diamonds with a king or a queen that decided to um, check the flop and then call your small bet on the turn. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. When you're calling, you're kind of hoping for like that hand. Well, I mean, I'm really just hoping for a chop. (laughs) I'm hoping he just has an eight and because I don't think he's actually bluffing with that type of hand all that often, but he may. I mean, there's a chance he decides to put in a small raise with a three, like ace three of hearts or something that decided to float the turn. I mean, I don't think it's likely. Mm-mm. There's like all of these bluffs just don't seem likely, right? Especially if you tell me I'm playing against a player who does not seem to be all that out of line. So look, I don't think we're catching all that many bluffs here, but I do think we're chopping it a lot. And if we have to put in whatever it is, 220K to try to chop up a total of one point something million, it's probably worth it. So we're putting in 220 to win 500 or so on average or to get back 500. I think it's fine. It's unfortunate. Like, I mean, I think he made a, a fun, a, a neat raise size. I'm trying to think what would happen if he raised bigger because he's still pretty deep stacked right here and the pot's pretty big. Like if I bet 145 and he makes it 600, I'd probably still just cry and call it off in reality. I mean, I would hate it, but whenever your opponent's representing just like such a tiny portion of value hands, like just flushes, right? It's kind of hard to have them. And against the good battling opponents, I, you just have to find calls in those scenarios. But against weak, tight recreational players, you should find pretty big folds in this spot. But in $5,000 buying tournaments, like I said, most people are not overly tight and passive. And if they are, they typically don't make it to the final table. So I I did elect to call. um, And he showed up with the queen 10 of diamonds. And an important point about this is that a lot of people in this scenario, I've seen it many, many times among people who don't like understand this scenario where there are like a backdoor flush available. When you have a pretty good hand, like a straight, I've seen many people with a straight here just like go all in because they think they have the best hand. And to be fair, like, you know, I easily could have the best hand, but if I go all in here and get called, I'm just like always in terrible shape. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, I've seen people with hands like nine, eight, or even a bad flush. Like say I had random, I don't know, seven, two of diamonds and defended pre-flop and then made a backdoor flush here. Like I would not jam seven, two of diamonds here because like, what's he going to call me with, right? He's going to call me with actually only good flushes. And if you think about his range, it should contain a whole lot of ace high and king high flushes. You have to have queen ten of diamonds for a reasonable queen high flush as well. But this is a spot where you have to be really careful on the river when you bet and get raised. You don't want to be jamming here like much at all, really. It's a neat spot where we lose some chips, but I mean, I think all in all, I'm happy enough with the hand. Like I said, maybe I would play it slightly differently if I was playing it today. Uh, good thing I didn't play it today because I would have bet flop, bet turn, and jammed river <laughs> and uh, probably got snapped off by the, the flush. So I would have just been out of the tournament, but, um, or, you know, I would have gave him a full double up. I don't know what your sizing would have been like on the flop, but you think he would have felt compelled to call with queen 10 of diamonds on jack seven Ford with one diamond. Yeah. I mean, you have an overcard backdoor flush draw, backdoor straight draw. I mean, what are you going to do? You can't fold to a small bet. I mean, I probably would have bet half pot or something. And then flush draw on the turn, I would have blasted it. We still would have called. Maybe he jams me on the turn and I would have folded. That would have been lucky. Then we make the, the straight on the river and you got to presume the straight's good after you've put in a lot of aggression. It's important to realize in this hand, no money went in on the flop, right? So he has very clearly all of the flush draws on the turn, or at least the majority of them. Whereas if I like bet the flop and then blast a turn, he may lose some of those at some point. So then you don't have to be quite as worried about it. And the pot would have been bigger. So a straight, 
as the pot gets bigger, the hands you need to get all in typically get a little bit weaker because the pot's so big. I mean, I remember playing this hand. I was pretty annoyed about it. And because uh, like, you know, you make straights at the final table and it's, it's just like an unlucky spot where you lose to the runner runner flush. And you can't, you can't get too frustrated. You can't be annoyed. You just have to continue playing to the best of your ability. So the rest of the final table, I do remember me and Jonathan Jaffe played a big flip. He told me later he thought it was bad. He thought I should have been a little bit more cautious because like there were one or two recreational players at the final table and he thought we should not be getting it all in. I don't remember exactly how it went down. I think I must have raised, he must have three bet. And I think I just jammed it all in with a pocket jacks for like 40 big blinds or something like that. And he called with ace king, which is fine. You know, like I, in, in my mind, this is kind of like a standard unfortunate spot where you take two aggressive players and they both get good hands and they go broke. He was saying perhaps we should, I should have just called the three bet. Saw the flop, gone from there, and then just, you know, got money in with overpairs. Like whenever I have an overpair with my jacks, as opposed to jamming, because when I jam, he's going to call off pretty well, right? And I guess in his mind, he probably thought he wasn't three-betting me all that often. For the same reason, like I've been discussing here, where the medium stacks need to not play big pots against each other. It's funny to me that poker players who win millions of dollars, they come from all different types when it comes to memory. Some people remember everything, and some people don't remember much. I remember almost nothing <laughs> for the most part, unless it's like, I don't know, it's especially memorable. I, it, I just kind of like play the hand to the best of my ability, then forget about it. And all these hands that I have recorded that I used to make content, I write them all down. So it's not like I'm, I have some great memory for this kind of thing because I recognize I don't. And I will, I would venture to say that a lot of people who think they have good memories don't actually have as good of memories as they think they do. Because like I've seen people play hands and then I'll watch them recount the hand to somebody else. And they're just, they're just wrong about it. Or I'll see it like reported in, in media. I'll read it. I'll, I'll know they reported it accurately because I was sitting at the table observing it, right? And then I'll listen to the person talk about the hand a week later and they just have something wrong about it. I think people think they have good memories, but, and some people do, don't get me wrong. Some people certainly do. But I think a lot of people have like, you know, marginal memories. And to be fair, if you ask me to recount this hand, I could probably get it, I don't know, 30, 40% right, you know, five years later, but I'm certainly not going to get it anywhere near 100% accurate like I would if I literally wrote down exactly what happened right after it happened. That's a great point. And I mean, of course, we see that in like eyewitness accounts that they're notoriously unreliable as, you know, once you create something in your mind, you know, you just tweak all these details and it becomes so real in your mind that it feels um, inconceivable that you could be misremembering it. Oh, gosh, it's so funny when that happens. Wow. Yeah, I fully recognize my memory is no good, so I, I don't trust it so much. And, um, I mean, I, I write down everything. I try to, in my calendar, my calendar is full of reminders and, you know, everything. Because I know I'm going to forget stuff if I don't remind myself consistently to do it. And that's how I remain decently productive is I keep track of everything to some extent, as opposed to, oh, I have a podcast today. I've got to do the grid. And then I'll wake up. Huh, what was I supposed to do today? And then I'll just forget about it, you know? Even though, like, it's on my mind, it's important to me, I want to do it. But if I don't remind myself to do it, I will just forget. And I think for poker players, this is especially important because poker players very often don't have a very strict schedule or, like, things to do. And, like, poker tournaments are a good example of this. You, you say the tournament starts at noon, a lot of poker players stroll in whenever they want. And that costs them some amount of equity because if you show up on time, you're going to have a bit of an edge against the people who show up on time for the most part and not showing up on time and not keeping any sort of schedule results in them losing little bits of equity here and there. And imagine it costs you, I don't know, $50 every tournament you play. If you're playing medium or high stakes tournaments, missing the first 30 minutes probably cost you 50 bucks. Like over the course of a year, it adds up. And 
I'd rather have that extra $50 a day just by keeping a schedule and being a little bit more structured in my life. What about ranges and odds? How do you overcome memory in terms of needing to kind of like internalize certain poker ranges that it's kind of complex because there's so many different situations? Like I have an app, the poker coaching app. It has GTO charts for various stack sizes. So if you're playing, you know, like 21 big blinds deep, pull up the 20 big blind charts, you'll have GTO charts for that scenario. And you'll start to see patterns and things that you know, line up if you reference them enough. But referencing them is very important. And then for post-flop, you learn general poker strategies about how to assess a range. Like I can remember one hand, you know, I can remember what range we're looking at for this individual hand. And then you break down the hands into premium hands, draws, marginal made hands, and junk. And you know the ratios of which types of hands you should have in each scenarios. And if you do enough of this practice away from the table, it will eventually just kind of become second nature. First things first, do we have the range advantage and nut advantage? That's how you go about thinking about this. If you have the range advantage and nut advantage, you know you have the range advantage and nut advantage because you've studied a little bit. You know what boards are good for you and for your opponent. If it's good for you, you're usually just betting very, very frequently. Your sizing is based on whether or not you have a big nut advantage or a small nut advantage. Again, you have to learn that by studying. Then um, if you're not betting frequently, you typically want to bet your premium hands and your draws, usually your weaker draws and your best draws. And then you want to be checking your marginal hands and your draws that are not quite good enough to bet and face a raise. And uh, you check your garbage as well. So you're checking a, a decently strong range of like top pair, bad kicker, middle pair, stuff that can realistically see the showdown happily. And I, I teach this thoroughly at pokercoaching.com. And it goes through all of this. I'm actually giving a presentation to later today to um, the MIT and Harvard Poker Clubs on this exact topic. Wow. I love that they're kind of joining together. I've given some talks about poker and chess at MIT before, and uh, some of the Harvard kids came, but I didn't realize they were combined now. That's cool. I sent them the PowerPoint and they loved it. So they figured we might as well combine and make it happen. You know, it's all virtual anyway. So it's not like they have to go to different campuses or anything like that. Is there ever anything that either with your learning process or with your students that you feel like is particularly difficult for people to memorize? Maybe something that's just like so counterintuitive that it requires more iterations of review? I mean, in terms of spots where that strategy I just outlined to you kind of breaks down to some extent is with things like under pairs and bottom pairs, because bottom pairs often become marginal hands that want to just see a cheap showdown. Sometimes they are bet, though, if you look at the solver, and they're usually bet when you lack enough obvious draws. So they're effectively turned into draws in some scenarios. So say you have bottom pair, say, I don't know, let's, I don't even know if this is the correct scenario, but say someone raises, you call the big blind, it comes, let's say Jack nine, two, and you have three, two suited, right? That's a hand where maybe you have to check raise it as a bluff if your opponent bets, which is like kind of counterintuitive because you do have some draws, but the board is generally good for their range. Like kind of like a weird scenario where you also don't really want to check call bottom pair, no kicker as well, because it's going to realize this equity very poorly. It's a very, very tough scenario to navigate well. And then like, say the board's jack nine, three, maybe pocket twos turns itself into a bluff. I don't know. <laughs> right. Because it's, it gets really dicey and you'll find sometimes like under pairs opt to bluff, bottom pairs opt to bluff. And that's, that's kind of murky and difficult to figure out exactly those scenarios. So that's something that like I have a problem with. And I think most people have a problem with because it's like what the solver does in that scenario is well kind of counterintuitive because you think of any pair that's not good as a marginal pair, but that's not necessarily true. Sometimes it's too weak to be a marginal pair. If it's too weak to be a marginal pair, but it has some outs, then maybe it opts to play aggressively. Right. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot as well. And especially with like the pairs, it seems like a lot of times it 
it comes down to like suit selection, mm-hmm. having the right suit so that your opponent's less likely to fill out their flushes. It's very difficult to understand. I get that. You don't necessarily want to raise with draws that have to fold if they get re-raised. You have to ask, like, are open-ended straight draws good enough to just check, raise, flop, and then call off if they shove all in? Or is it too weak? And if it's too weak, you probably just want to check call instead. And there's like a fine line between it being too weak and good enough to, to get it all in. And if it's good enough to get it all in, you usually just check, raise those draws. But if it's not good enough to get all in, then you check, raise weaker draws, like gut shots. But if there aren't enough gut shots, that's when you start using a lot of bottom pairs. It's like really convoluted to go through that thought process in the 30 seconds you have to act when you're playing with a shot clock or online or whatnot. I categorize that more as like pattern recognition or like conceptual understanding than memorization. A lot of this is not memorization. It's just under, it's having a good thought process in your mind to explain how to play all these various scenarios. So like none of this, I mean, like, I don't think you should be memorizing what the solver does in any scenario because it's like impossible to do. And even if you do, you have to make, figure out splitting your ranges in various scenarios based on randomization or based on how your opponent's adjusting. I actually just went through this hand that uh, Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu played yesterday, where if Daniel Negreanu uses a small bet size on the flop, like he does in almost all scenarios in three bet pots, Doug Polk should like never raise the flop ever with none of his, with any of his range. But if he uses the GTO strategy, Doug Polk should raise pretty often. And seeing the differences there is important because like, imagine you're never supposed to raise against a particular strategy, but you're supposed to raise 30% of the time against a different strategy the one that maybe you've been studying because it's the GTO strategy, that leads to you making a lot of errors if they are make, using a very different strategy. So in that scenario, Negreanu made a small bet as he, as he does very frequently and Polk raised in a scenario where if you node lock for it, the solver literally never raises. So it's like interesting to see how all of these things line up and how you have to adjust substantially based on what your opponent's doing correctly like the solver does or exploitatively by adjusting one way or the other or simplifying their strategy. Yeah, and it's interesting because I feel like that has life applications too, in that people who are sometimes really, really intelligent in a specific way can sometimes have a difficulty implanting themselves in the brain of somebody who doesn't think that way because it comes so naturally to them. For sure. Yeah, I mean, in poker, it happens all the time, right? Like, say, say when this guy raises me on the river <laughs> in our hand we discussed, he may literally have no bluffs. And if he has literally no bluffs, then I'm supposed to fold a straight, right? And the thing is, is you don't know how your opponent thinks. So you have to kind of average how you think the generic player like this player plays combined with how a good player would play if the player actually is good. Because you don't know if they're good or not good, right? If you have not a whole lot of experience. Like at this final table, I had relatively little experience with my opponent. And you don't know. So you just have to take an average. I mean, there's a lot of spots where, like let's say you raise and someone goes all in and you're deciding whether or not to call. You should not just say, I think they have this range. I'm going to call or fold according to that because you don't know what they're doing if they're just a hypothetical player, right? So if you're playing online and you think the player's playing decently, but you don't really know for sure, you should probably assume they're way tighter than normal some portion of the time, playing well some portion of the time and playing insane some portion of the time. And you should see if you you know assign percentages to each of those player types maybe it's a call or fold. Like say you think they're really tight 10% of the time, but insane 30% of the time and normal the rest, what, 60% of the time, then you're going to be doing a lot of calling. But if you think they're actually tight a lot because maybe their heads up display says that they are tight, right? Maybe it it seems like they are playing nitty. Um, Maybe you think they're tight 40% of the time and normal 40% of the time and crazy 20%. Now maybe that's a call or it's a fold. It may be a fold in that scenario because they're tighter than normal, but you don't exactly know how much tighter. But you should never assume they're just like tight 100% of the time 
just because they've been tight for 100 hands. And should not assume they're sane just because they've been insane for 100 hands. Maybe they just got hit by the deck. One thing about the hand that with the Queen 10 suited that strikes me is I completely agree with you that you never say, like, my opponent's never bluffing here because never is such a strong word. You just have to, like, discount it. But, you know, if you're not sure, one thing that sometimes I think gets underrated is just focusing on how wide the value range of your opponent is because if their value range isn't very wide, then you can kind of, like, think about that more than about whether they're capable of bluffing. And sometimes it can be an easier to make an estimation of that. As they have a big, big value range, then they're just more likely to have those hands, right? And as their value range is tinier, like imagine they'd only raise the river with the nut flush, let's say. Yeah. And you know they only open like ace-10 suited and better. They don't open the low ace-x suited. Then they only have a few combinations, right? Yeah. That didn't apply to this player. It's hard to analyze these spots because who knows what's going on. If you don't know what's going on and you got a pretty good hand, just say call and don't worry about it. Yeah, I like that. Yes, don't worry about it. That's a good thing about having a memory where you just write things down and then you just like eject them because there's so many people who just get haunted and like replay this hand that was just, you know, oftentimes a cooler in their head over and over again. Like, could I have figured it out? And you just seem to be so chill, which I think for a mental game of poker <laughs> is probably really, really useful. Whenever I'm thinking about poker, I'm not thinking like I'm going to try to make some sick outplay on my opponent. I'm just going to try to play my ranges reasonably and it's probably going to be good enough against the vast majority of the players. But I'm never trying to say my opponent has exactly a flush here because of blank and blank and blank, because I don't know. I recognize I don't know. And if I like make up a bunch of points, I realize half of them are just going to be like gigantic assumptions or just wrong, even though it's going to be right sometimes, right? The thing is, I think people feel like a genius whenever they get it right. Mm -hmm. And then when they get it wrong, they're like, oh, you know, got it wrong. What can I do? I realize like I'm not right or wrong in a lot of these scenarios. I have a straight and a straight's pretty good. <laughs> and um, worst case, I lose out on 200K chips or whatever it is. And best case, I, I win a giant pot. You don't have to be right all that often. And if you are wrong in these scenarios, yeah, you'd like to plug the leak if you're losing, let's say, I call 200K chips here and I'm, I lose 30K on average or 40K on average. You'd rather plug the leak, but at the same time, it's not that detrimental because this spot doesn't even come up all that often anyway. You want to study the spots that come up very frequently, like preflop ranges, right? We asked about memorizing preflop ranges earlier. Yeah, you better figure it out because it comes up every single hand you play. Whereas, you know, making a straight on the river and getting raised and not having the best hand, it's a rare occurrence, right? Exactly. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a really important point. What do you miss most about live poker, you know, thinking about this hand and the WSOP? Because it's been obviously a while since you've gotten to play. Oh, actually, no, you played in Vegas really recently. I actually just returned home from Vegas. I'm quarantined in my bedroom, been here for three or four days now. I just returned. We played Poker After Dark for two days. Not allowed to say how it went. I didn't fare so well in all ends, I can say that. <laughs> and uh, so that was annoying. I wish I got to put in a lot more volume because, you know, you go and you play two days of poker and anything can happen in two days. And very happy with my play. Felt great to go play some cards. What do you miss about playing live poker regularly? Well, I mean, I miss getting in a lot of volume because whenever you go and you play short periods of time or you don't get to play all that often, there's just like infinite variance in any session because you might only play two or 300 hands in a day. And if you play online, you can just play a ton. Like if I play online, I'll play 40 tournaments in a day, which is if you play a tournament a day, it's a month or two worth of live poker, right? So whenever you play live poker sporadically, you don't get a ton of volume, but you often have a very big edge in live poker if you are a skilled player, because usually players are not quite as good at live poker. And what do I miss about it? Eh, I just like playing cards. I'm ready to go play again. <laughs> 
it's fun. I don't mean, it's fun to go interact with people, have a fun time, see your friends, get to play a little bit. And um, I don't know, what, what do you miss about live poker? Well, I have an answer that I think might apply to you, actually, because you seem to have an incredible work ethic. I mean, it makes me tired just to like think about what your schedule must be like, because you've got your videos, your training, your books, your special presentations, and you're a dad of two. So like, and I also have a lot of things going on between chess and poker and my son. So I also think about this and what I miss about live poker is just kind of getting away from it where you're not really checking your messages that much, you know, maybe on the breaks, but there could be like a couple hours where I'm just completely away from it all and allowed to just think about this, you know, card game and like kind of socializing with the people I'm with. So I miss that. Yeah, I used to kind of view live poker as like, oh man, I got to go play another live poker tournament. But now it's like, oh, I get to go play live poker. I have a good excuse to get out of here. Okay, sign me up. I'm ready to go. And I mean, in terms of like my work ethic, though, I don't think I have a specially good work ethic. I think it's more of I have things that need to get done and I, I get those things done. And I probably sign up to too many things in reality, but like I don't mind the doing things that I, that I do. Like pretty much everything I do, I like doing. Like I don't view coming on the show as work, right? This is something I want to go do. And later today we have a presentation. I don't, I don't mind it. I mean, some people view that kind of thing as work or stressful because like in theory, it could go horribly wrong, right? But it's fun. It's fun. It's nice. It's good to get back to the community. It's good to help people who want to get good at the thing that you can help them get good at. I don't really mind pretty much anything that I do. And that makes it fun. And it doesn't really feel like work. That's a good way to put it. I mean, it's funny that you say that you don't have a great work ethic. You just assign yourself lots and lots of things and then you have to complete them because to me it just sounds like the same thing but I do understand what you're saying about how kind of seeing it as like fun instead of work and how you know it's like we're lucky to especially during these times to um, do things that are you know at the end uh, about a game or playing a game. I want to do the work right it's not like I dread the work or I hate doing the work it's like I want to do and if I hate doing it I'll either outsource it or not do it anymore like if you didn't like the show you probably would not have completed it either like the show or you don't mind the show it's one of the two that said after after however many of these there are you may be tired of it we'll see <laughs> well it'll be a very good feeling to finish it finishing is great and speaking of which um, you recently came out with a new book we talked about it a little earlier excelling at tough no limit hold'em games and you wrote a few of the chapters about multi-way pots about live tournaments and you also had a number of legendary co-authors which chapter did you feel like you learned the most from editing and working with the author that book is essentially a collection of call it 20 page or so chapters by a lot of very world-class poker players like we have john van fleet who's like one of the biggest winners online. His name's Ape Styles. We have Vlado, who I mentioned earlier. He won the Stadium Series for a million and a half bucks recently. Um, Draft Ganger, he's number one in the world recently. Rob Tanyan, he's won the Sunday Million twice. Anyway, a lot of very, very good players and also coaches. So I'm part of the Pokar backing company. They back lots and lots of poker players. And they essentially get poker players and at the small stakes, and they train them all the way up to the very, very high stakes. And all these people involved in this book are also involved with Pokar in one way or the other. And they have a private training site that I learned a lot from. And I wanted to, you know, try to explore some of the content there and have the coaches expound on it and turn it into a chapter. And it worked out great. But I mean, ones that I learned the most from, I mean, really the ICM one I mentioned earlier, I learned a lot from because I always thought I was pretty good at ICM because I played sit and goes for three years as a kid and I was very good at those. But a lot of that ICM work was pre-flop. Very little of it was post-flop and there were no tools back in the day to learn post-flop ICM mm -hmm. scenarios. But now they have Munker Solver, which can study all this stuff like very, very in depth. And uh, Vlada went through, showed a bunch of pre-flop ranges using Munker Solver and showed a bunch of post-flop scenarios. And that kind of thing's enlightening. 
Also, there was a chapter by draft ganger, Bert Stevens. He's also a poker coach and coach now. A lot of these people I've, I've ended up working with in various capacities, so that's a lot of fun. But he has a chapter where he basically, it's basically two hand history reviews of final tables where he had a medium stack. And he goes through and explains how to play a medium stack at the final table, which is a pretty tough spot to be in. And he explains limping strategies and various strategies. Like I was, I'm, I don't do a ton of limping as, as, in general, but he's limping a ton and he's number one player in the world. So it's like, okay, clearly this is perhaps better than what I am doing. Right. And since then I've, I've studied a lot and, and done decently well implementing that strategy. Like he says, right off the bat, this, these strategies are probably not solver approved, but they make more money. So uh, we're just going to do this play that makes more money. Um, also, there's a chapter by Cavalito, Alexander Mantovani, and his chapter is on PKO tournaments. And I was always a little bit afraid to play PKO tournaments because I realize like this bounty matters and I do not know how to accurately account for the bounty. And he provided a bounty calculator that you get just for buying the book. You can download it if you buy the book. And um, I used that while I was playing big PKO series last time I played online overseas and won like 80,000 bucks the first time I played him. And just like, you know, learning from the best and learning how to make sense of all of the things that I perhaps did not fully understand before is very, very valuable. The books by D&B, they did send me one, are very well produced, especially lately. I love the the look of them, the charts. Well, thank you. My, my job there, to some extent, is to curate the content. My job is to get good content together and make it make it happen. Since I've been involved, we had a book called Modern Poker Theory by Michael Acevedo. I was heavily involved with that one. We had um, Mastering Mixed Games by Dylan Lindy. That was a very, very good one. We had uh, Mike Sexton's biography, Life's a Gamble. That was also one of my projects. So I'm happy to get all these projects together and make them happen. Those are some successful projects you listed, Jonathan. So all these projects you're doing, you're doing so many things at once. You mentioned earlier, it's not worth ethic. It's just having these things that you're excited to do. That said, how do you structure a day when you suppose you have eight different things that have to be done, a podcast, a book, chapter, a video, um, emails to reply to? How do you go about organizing it? I think the secret is nothing ever has to get done. I hate deadlines. I never run into deadlines. I know some people love deadlines. I do not like them. Like if I need to write a book, for example, I have a book that's due um, March, four months from now. That's already done because no way in the world I'm going to run into a March deadline and have to be stressing out. These projects get assigned and I pretty much just attack them immediately. And there's some work I do that I can batch ahead of time, right? Like say you need to make some grid episodes. You could do four of them in a day and then be done for a little while, right? Or you could do them the day before they have to be uploaded and stress out about it. And you get to figure out how you want to structure that, right? So I have this uh, podcast, Weekly Poker Hand, where I go through a hand every week and I'll make 12 of them at a time and it'll take four or five hours and I'll just be done for three months. And I have to write articles for Card Player Magazine. That's something I can sit down, grind it out, right? Sit down, write 10 articles and be done for a while. And so most of the stuff I can do like that, I just find a free day and knock it out and sit down and grind it out. And that's not a problem. Like, I don't, I don't mind doing that. Other stuff like a book is a little bit more difficult, but usually I'll just set aside like a week where I'm going to work hard on the book. But even then, I may only get to work on the book for, let's say, two days, and then three days are maintenance, like other types of things, right? But I try to set aside large chunks of time to knock things out. I actually just made this tournament course. It's about uh, 50 hours long, gigantic tournament course, bigger than it should be, but very in-depth. It's basically all you need to know to be tournaments. And that took forever. Like that was a giant project. That took like eight months, which is way longer than it normally takes for me. But I worked with someone who's a very good teacher of college material. He has a site called Clutch Prep where he teaches people college material that the professors do not correctly teach. Essentially, he's like a really good tutor and he does it on a mass scale. And he taught me how to make my 
training videos better because he says that I'm generally naturally good at explaining things, but we could do a lot more with the process of making things pretty and also explaining things a little bit more concisely or perhaps in a more linear manner. Like that took a lot of time and that was a lot of effort. It was painful, but uh, we did it and we got through it and it's made the product better, which is which is good, right? I mean, I'm happy to try to improve and it's really, you know, always trying to improve it, but at the same time, still be able to be as productive and as effective as I like to be. I remember meeting your team or members of your team, including the the clutch prep person you met. Yeah, yeah, Johnny, you met him. Yes, in Las Vegas at the Global Poker Awards, which was the last time I went out, (laughs) you know, for drinks and whatnot for the entire year of 2020. That was, I think, in early March. But hey, it was a good night at least. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. I was actually there. I already had a company retreat planned. We try to get out, get away every six months or so to go work on some projects, have some fun. And it just happened to line up perfectly with the Global Poker Awards. That was very fortunate. In an interview with Rob Easterzynski, you talked about the strong influence that my own brother, Greg Shahadi, who um, used to play online poker professionally as Curtains, had on your early career. Do you remember anything that he taught you specifically? Yes. Back in the day, I was playing sit and goes. I was playing like $200 buy in sit and goes, and Greg was playing $100 buy in sit and goes. So smaller stakes than me, but he posted a lot on various internet forums, and I liked his content a lot. We talked poker a little bit. He clearly knew what he was doing way better than I did. And essentially, I was just way more willing to gamble than he was. He would rather just sit down, grind it out, make piles of money. I'd rather um, perhaps make a little bit more money with like infinite variance. (laughs) So I was a young, dumb kid, and he was a grown-up already. He basically went through a bunch of hand histories of mine and said that I was overvaluing ASEX from early position, which turns out I was. I was shoving it too frequently from early position. And I was calling all ends a little bit too often. And plugging those two little leaks made my return on investment go up like 2 or 3% immediately. And that may not sound like a lot, but if you're playing $200 buy-in tournaments, 6% is, or 3% is, what, $6 per game. But if you're playing 3,000 games a month, what's 6 times 3? 1,800 a month? Does that sound right? Yeah, sounds right. So you make an extra $1,800, 18, yeah, $1,800 a month, whatever it is. You make a decent amount more per month just by plugging this leak. And that paid off the amount I paid from to coach me basically immediately. And I mean, it was very, very beneficial. And I'm, and like, that was a great coaching experience. I've been very fortunate where I've hired a bunch of coaches. I probably spent, I don't know, $40,000 on private coaching at this point. And it's been well worth it because you're essentially getting everything they have learned given to you in a very quick, concise manner. And if someone can look through your hands and tell you you're doing these things slightly wrong, and then you are willing to fix it, then so it's like, it's, it's basically free. You know, like whatever amount they charge you is basically free because if you're going to put in a lot of volume as I was, even getting like half a percent ROI better would be immensely valuable. And Greg was very helpful. I think you have a good way of kind of trying to like target what's important. And that's what I was trying to say with this like, you know, convoluted compliment that maybe it's good not to have a great memory all the time. Um, as um, it really strikes me that you remember this this stuff from Greg, which was what, like, 13 years ago or something um, with ASAC. 2004, so 16 years ago. I mean, I remember <laughs> that because I use it as an example all the time. It was so beneficial. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to hire a coach for everything. And every, every time I go to learn a new game, I try to find someone who may not be like the highest stakes player, but someone who can put their thoughts together well, who can like clearly help other people get better. And Greg was great at that at poker. I'm sure he's great at that at chess. And he has his thoughts together. And, and that's that's very, very valuable. Definitely. And he has a good personality. Um, and I think that obviously is helpful as you um, keep people interested in what you're saying. But yeah, that that's it. That's it. Like remembering important things like these patterns. And then, you know, the 
the very specific hand with 6-8 suited at the WSOP five years ago, you might forget that, but then like the principles that kind of like, you know, actually underpin your play, there's like more mental space for them. I find that really interesting. And I think that I've also met other players who kind of share that with you, where their exact memory recall is not that great, but they kind of by that, by virtue of that, they remember what's important. You got to remember what's important because a lot of stuff is irrelevant and um, there's only so much room in your brain. So try to remember the stuff that's relevant. Like this hand that we went through where it comes Jack 7-4. I didn't even know I was going to say that, hey, maybe this is a spot to lead until I literally looked at it with you right now. And like that just popped in my mind because I've learned that since then. And you find spots like that where you learn new strategies and you learn to adjust. And you learn that, okay, this is a spot where it's low, middle connected kind of nonsense board where not a lot's going on that you can conceivably apply pressure. And so you don't necessarily remember the very specifics about things, but you, at least I, at least I remember broad generalizations and usually you can apply those reasonably well. But yeah, anyway, my memory's bad. So I, I do my best to make, make up for it in various other ways. And uh, what is your most underrated hand in the grid? Oh, I don't know if any hands are underrated nowadays. It turns out the solver really likes defending the big blind with low suited connected stuff like uh, six, three suited and five, three suited and things like this. I think those hands are probably underrated. I think most people probably don't value those quite highly enough. Like if someone raises and you're folding the six, three suited in a tournament, you're probably playing way too tight. So yeah, get in there and play the bad hands because they don't see them coming. Thank you so much, Jonathan Little. Of course, you have so many different places where we can find you. Jonathan is the founder of PokerCoaching.com. He also has all of those books, which you can find anywhere you buy books. DNB Poker, you're a part owner in. And of course, he's also on Twitter at Jonathan Little. Everything's there. Yay, yes. It's always easier just to have one central place. And we do have Jonathan Little at Jonathan Little on Twitter. PokerCoaching.com with 6-8 suited. Thank you so much for joining us on The Grid, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to ThePokerGrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent. You won't see me, see me.